if you have your Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 2. And we continue, this is the third message in this series. We're going to continue reading verses 1 through verse 13. And while you're opening up your Bibles, I want to remind you just of the study guide that we put together for the purpose of this series as a kind of companion volume to study while we're going through the series. Um, I, I hope to be recommending other resources, other books to you. And in fact, I'll do that next week. But I just want to make sure that this is anchored in your mind as a primary study source and is firmly, firmly established as the kind of go-to manual for your devotions, your study during this series. Okay, Acts chapter 2. Title of this morning's message is The Flashpoint. The Flashpoint. Beginning in verse 1. <clears throat> when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound, like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each was hearing them, each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome. Both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean. But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. Let's pray. Lord, we, we remember the words that you spoke when you were under temptation that man cannot live by bread alone. Lord, we need your, your word. Your word is life. Your Word feeds us. Your Word protects us. Your Word preserves us. And Your Word transforms us. And, and we pray today that that would be the, the effect of Your Word within us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. History is a written record of flashpoints. Now, a flashpoint is defined as a point at which someone or something bursts suddenly into action 
or suddenly into being. A flashpoint. So throughout history, certain names, certain places have come to symbolize this idea of a flashpoint. Nero, Columbus, Wittenberg, Nuremberg, Gutenberg, Gettysburg, Pittsburgh. It's back in the 70s. Steelers won four Super Bowls. That was epic for the Steel City. But there are more sobering ones, certainly. There is Black, the Black Death, Great Depression, Vietnam, Rwanda, 9-11, where, where the mere mention of the name, the mere mention of the word, sparks a memory of an event where lives were altered in some irreversible way. They became flashpoints in human history. Acts chapter 2 represents the second most significant flashpoint in the history of the world. The first was, of course, when the God of the universe hung suspended on a tree bearing the sins of his people and then rose decisively from the dead, having defeated sin and death and Satan. And those events that are heralded, those events that are contained within the gospel are the hinge upon which all of human history turns. Acts chapter 2 represents the second most significant flashpoint in history. The moment in time where the people of God received the power of God. And packed into this one singular event was a power that would ultimately change all nations in some way. In 1917, Ernest Rutherford split the atom, unleashing an energy that would really, I mean, it would change the balance of power throughout the entire world. And as a result of that act, as a result of that discovery, one blast could, could send 20,000 tons of TNT. It could deliver 20,000 tons of TNT into an area, into a city. It could level cities. It could vaporize people within seconds. One event changes everything. See, Acts chapter 2 comes to us as a, as a kind of atom bomb times 10 million. It records an event, a moment, where everything changes. It documents a time where, that really makes the, the, the power of plutonium in comparison incidental, almost insignificant. Because this was a moment in history where the power of God became present in man. This was a place in history where the global implications of the gospel began to find purchase in the minds of his people. It was a time in history when God empowered his people to live a new life in a new way. It became a historical flashpoint that would echo down the corridors of history and meet you and me in some meaningful way right here, right now, this morning. 
I mean, maybe we can begin to consider and, and understand what was really taking place in Acts chapter 2, verse 11, when they were asking the question, what does this mean? That's the question. That's the question we all have to wrestle with. But there was something significant that they had encountered that pushed forward that question. What does this mean? I think it's the same question we all carry this morning. And so here's, here's a simple response that I want to give to you and then I want to un unpack with you of what this means. Pentecost was the Holy Spirit's power revealed and received. Pentecost was the Holy Spirit's power revealed and received. Now let's talk first about power revealed. And I'm going to mention three different points under this first major heading. I'm going to talk about how the power was revealed historically, how the power was revealed suddenly, and how God's power was revealed recognizably. Okay? So let's look first at revealed historically. So Luke starts this section of Scripture with the time, and the time that he gives is quite precise. He says, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now let's just stop there, and let's remember back what Pentecost represents. Pentecost was a feast. And it was symbolized or symbolic of two different events in Israel. One was legal, the other was agricultural. The legal event, legal having to do with the law, that's what that means, the legal event was the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Because this was recorded as happening 50 days after Passover. So it was called Pentecost. The Greek word there is Pentecostus, means 50th. So that's what Pentecost means. 50 days after the Passover. Now, there's no coincidence that the law is represented in this defining moment, in this flashpoint of history, that the law is represented there because what's happening here is the promise of the new covenant being fulfilled. The promise of all the law pointing forward to was being fulfilled. And I'm just going to pull out one passage from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33 to give you an example of what I'm talking about where Jeremiah said, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And so the Spirit of God arrived inaugurating this new covenant, this, this new way of God dealing with people where God Himself would enter into the hearts of people through the Holy Spirit and writing His law upon their heart. And so even as God begins to draw us to Himself, He begins this work of inscribing His law upon our heart. As He converts us to Him, He installs His law within our heart. But it's all connected to how the Spirit of God uses the law. And that's part of the reason why this happened on the day of Pentecost. Because the law was going to play a part. The law was represented in the work of the Spirit coming. The law worked to draw people. 
and, and, and was inscribed on the hearts of those being drawn. Inscribed ultimately on the hearts of those being converted. I read a book last year called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert by a woman named Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. The book described a woman who was a tenured English professor at Syracuse. She was a committed lesbian. Her academic focus in her study and teaching was queer theory. And she described herself as a skeptic of all things Christian. But, but God began this, this hunting expedition towards her and, and she begins to describe how the, how the Spirit of God began to draw her. And how the Spirit of God began to use the Word of God to bring her to Himself and to ultimately convert her. And here's a quote. Here's something that she recalled about that experience. She said, quote, After my second or third or maybe fourth pass through the entire Bible, something started to happen. The Bible got to be bigger inside of me than I. And it absolutely overflowed into my world. I really fought against it. And then one Sunday morning, no different from any other Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover, and an hour later, I sat in a church pew. I went there very conspicuous of the fact that I didn't fit in, but I really had to confront this God. And she goes on to describe how more importantly, God was confronting her through His Word that she had been reading time and time again. And ultimately what happened is she had this kind of personal Pentecost where the Spirit of God was working in pursuing her Pressing the claims of God's law upon her soul. And so part of what's wrapped up in Pentecost is this, is this legal component where the law of God is being represented because the Spirit's going to come and the Spirit's going to draw and the Spirit's going to inscribe the law of God upon the hearts of people and it's all the work of the Spirit of God. So there's the legal side. And then there's the agricultural side. These are the two different feast. The agricultural was the feast of the harvest, which also took place 50 days after Passover. What that meant is that there would be a lot of pilgrims in Jerusalem from all over the then known world. And we read about some of them in, in verse 9 and 10, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judah and Cappadocia and on and on the list goes. And they're gathered together within this city, and all of a sudden, boom, a flashpoint. The Spirit comes, the disciples receive, they begin to magnify God in different languages, and on that very day, 3,000 souls are harvested for the kingdom of God. And immediately upon the arrival, the Spirit begins to do what the Spirit was sent to do. He magnifies the Son of God. He magnifies the work of the Gospel. He begins to convict, to draw. He ultimately empowers God's people to go forward. And He begins to harvest souls for the glory of God. 
See, you and I and we, we sit here today because the Spirit was sent on that day. That's ultimately what delivered us here on this day. So there is this law, this, this power that is revealed. And it is revealed first historically through these two things. Through the, the legal and the agricultural, all of which delivered the people of God and these people from around the world to Jerusalem at this particular time. So revealed historically. Revealed secondly, suddenly. Suddenly. Look at verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like the rushing wind. Now I want you to think about what's taking place here because this is a really strange use of this particular word given the fact that they were all prepared for the Spirit to come, given the fact that they were together in the upper room and waiting, doing exactly what Jesus said to do, to wait. I mean, do you, do you get what I mean here? Suddenly applies unexpectedly. Suddenly implies surprisingly. You know, if I, if I say to you, hey, let's all go over to my office and let's wait for Paul Gilbert to come over to us. And Paul walks into my office. It's not like suddenly Paul appeared. No, we're sitting there. We're, we're, we're waiting for him. And, 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 you know, we're just, that's what we expected to have happen. See, th th this was, a, this was a, 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 a moment where no preparation could have possibly prepared them for what they ultimately encountered. The take-home theory here is no amount of preparation, no amount of forewarning, no amount of words or discussion or, or small group debate over what exactly they could anticipate could have armed them for this experience. This was a Toto, I've got the feeling we're not in Kansas anymore, moment if there ever was one here on earth. Because the Spirit always comes suddenly. He doesn't run on our clock. He doesn't appear at times where we appoint for Him to come. John describes the wind, the Spirit, as the wind blows as it wishes. We cannot make the Spirit come. We cannot coerce the Spirit to come. He's not our valet. He's not our personal assistant. He keeps His own hours. And his hours are always synchronized to God's will. Not our will, God's will. And he reserves the right to come suddenly. And that's exactly what happened. So revealed historically, revealed suddenly, and revealed lastly, last sub-point under this major point of power revealed, revealed recognizably. Revealed recognizably. So first, there was the sound like a mighty rushing wind. In fact, you know where that sound came from? It says specifically, from heaven. Sound of mighty rushing wind, from heaven. So Jesus had returned to heaven, and as promised, He sent, or the Holy Spirit was sent from heaven. And, and the Holy Spirit was revealed recognizably in sound. But it didn't end there. Next, there were divided tongues of fire that rested on each of them, 
resulting in each of them speaking in other tongues. So first there's the wind, then there's the fire, then there's speech. All of those things recognizable. All of those things recognizable. Now, none of those things, the wind, the fire, the speech, none of those things were the Holy Spirit, but they were all discernible evidences, discernible experiences that accompanied the Holy Spirit. And I'm not implying in that that they always accompany the work of the Holy Spirit. I'm saying in Acts chapter 2 they did, and I'm saying that the Spirit's activity was recognizable. Now, recognizable does not mean central. The main point here is not that the signs accompanied the Holy Spirit's arrival. The main point here is the Holy Spirit's arrival. See, the disciples would have really missed something if, if they would have left the upper room and immediately began, began to pursue wind and fire. Or, or just wind, you know? Go out studying wind. We need to make 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 ourselves more aware of what wind is all about because wind was part of this entire experience. So let's develop our understanding of wind. Let's develop our vocabulary of wind. Let's talk about gusts and airstreams and thermals and all those things. Let's debate wind. Let's worship wind. I mean, that's akin to making much of the donkey which Jesus rode upon when he came into Jerusalem. Hail the donkey! Let's talk more about the donkey. Let's talk in fellowship group about the donkey. Yeah, See, the, the donkey's definitely part of the story, but it's not, not because he's central to the story, but because he's accompanying God. See, the wind is part of the story, but it's not central to the story, and it's not central to the story, but he's in, it's in the story because it accompanied God. It accompanied God the Holy Spirit coming. So, it's recognizable does not mean central. Recognizable means experiential. See, the Holy Spirit's arrival accomplished this amazing feat. The Holy Spirit's arrival converted the knowledge of God's presence into the experience of God's presence. They heard something. They saw something. They felt something. Something they knew about the presence of God because they always read about it. In the Old Testament, all of a sudden now, they were experiencing the presence of God. See, what is crucial here in Acts chapter 2 is the announcement that believers would now be indwelt by the eternal God. That the locus of God's presence would no longer be localized the way it was in the Old Testament where He came upon one leader at one time and then lifted, or He was in the temple, or He was in the, uh, in the tabernacle, but it was always localized. But the new home for God's Spirit would be the believer. And then later on in Acts chapter 2, we'll discover the church gathered. So the Holy Spirit comes as God's empowering presence and, and remains because He's indwelling within the believer. And that never changes. It's not like the Old Testament where He comes and then He leaves. He's here to stay until the final day. Gordon Fee says, quote, 
in dealing with the Spirit, we are dealing with none other than the personal presence of God Himself. See, Jesus was God with us. The Spirit is God within us. And that's what Acts chapter 2 begins, that's what Acts chapter 2 announces. And, and it's the way that we will know God's love for us in Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 5. It's how we'll confirm that we're children of God. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. It's why we must not grieve the Spirit of God. Acts chapter, or Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Because we are indwelt by God Himself. And as we march through the book of Acts, we're going to discover that He's in us in ways that are recognizable. Now, let me just be real clear and qualify this. It doesn't mean only recognizable because we're going to discover together that the Spirit of God works in many ways that are unrecognizable beneath the surface. And that those things are as significant as the ways that He works that are recognizable. But let's not pursue a Christianity that omits the possibility that the Spirit works in recognizable ways as well. So as we march through the book of Acts, that's what we're going to discover. And it's why Acts chapter 2 was a flashpoint. That Pentecost was the Holy Spirit's power revealed. The Holy Spirit's power revealed. But it wasn't that alone. It was also the Holy Spirit's power received. And that's what moves us on to the second main point. Power received. Now under this point, I want to talk about what does the baptism of the Holy Spirit mean? I want to talk about unity in worship and boldness in witness. So those are the three sub-points under power received. So, I want to begin by looking at what it means to be filled with the Spirit, baptized in or with the Holy Spirit, and what effect that has on these new believers. But in addressing this, I want to, I want to just move toward telling you a little bit of my story so that you can understand how I track this idea of being filled with or baptized in the Holy Spirit. So, see, every expositor is influenced by their experience. In fact, pity the preacher who denies that reality. And so I acknowledge that reality. I want you to understand that reality and, and hear a little bit about that reality. So, I was converted in the 70s towards the end of the Jesus people movement. And if that that term means nothing to you. Just be grateful that you've never seen a converted hippie in bell-bottom singing, this is the day that the Lord has made. It can, it can just ruin certain worship songs for you forever. So anyway, I was converted into a group that was primarily charismatic, believing in the operation of the gifts for today, believing in the power of God at work today. And we prayed for people to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit as an experience subsequent to conversion. That just means after conversion. So there was the conversion experience, and then there was the experience of receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't personally ever recall receiving 
or experiencing that second experience, but I believed that way, and I, I prayed for other people to receive that baptism of the Holy Spirit, and to my surprise, it appeared at times as if there were some that received that. In 1985, Kim and I relocated to the Philadelphia area, and in 1986, I joined a pastoral team in a Reformed Charismatic Church. Now, being a Reformed Charismatic in the 80s was a very lonely existence because the Reformed world did not want to identify with you, and the Charismatic world felt you were too Reformed to be a Charismatic, and so you were pretty much on your own. In 1988, I began to attend a Reformed seminary in Philadelphia, and for the next 15 years, the family of churches that I was a part of underwent something of a small reformation as we were being exposed to the Puritans and exposed to the Reformers and exposed to the broader evangelical movement and thinking and just being cross-examined in very good ways about what we believed as all churches, all networks, and all movements should be. Well, this prompted some dramatic shifts where our accent on charismatic practice and charismatic theology kind of slid decisively more towards Reformed theology. And over that time, we began to change the way we thought about Acts chapter 2 and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, how that was interpreted. And many people within this family of churches and within my local church, some of the people went from the belief that there was a second experience after being a Christian to baptism in the Holy Spirit or with the Holy Spirit describing what takes place at conversion, what takes place right here in Acts chapter 2. But that takes place at conversion and in the initiation into the universal church. And 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 played a key role in our understanding where it says, where Paul said, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. That's talking about conversion, by the way. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And so, for a while, I, I kind of be believed that. I moved from this experience of believing in subsequence, which means that this, you have this second experience after conversion, to the belief that it, it all comes to you kind of at, at conversion. But little did I know that there would be an additional step that I would take where my study and interaction began to see the baptism of the Holy Spirit not merely as a conversion experience and not merely as the first filling of Acts chapter 2, but as a flexible metaphor that is used in Scripture. Okay, now stay with me for a second, okay? Stay with me. A metaphor is something that is a comparison, something that's symbolic of, of something else. So if I say that the Knoll's defense yesterday was like a wall, you know, the, the wall is, is a metaphor. It's, it's not really a wall, it's, it's a metaphor, it's a comparison, it's something symbolic. So, so that's, that's what a metaphor is. Flexible means that the metaphor can be adapted to different uses. So... I think of fishing, and Jesus said he was going to make us fishers, make the original disciples fishers of men. Or we can fish for a compliment, or we can fish for information. Fish is a metaphor, for fishing is a metaphor, but it flexes in different situations to mean different things. 
So what I'm trying to say here is that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is a flexible metaphor that is used in Scripture. Basically the same as other metaphors in Scripture used to describe the experience of the Spirit. So, so we you know, think about the Spirit being poured out, quote-unquote, or the Spirit fills us, or we receive the Holy Spirit. All of these are, are metaphors to talk about the same kinds of things. People being converted. People encountering the Spirit of God in fresh ways within the course of our Christianity. It is a metaphor that is flexible. I have a quote for you. It's by D.A. Carson. And it's a dense quote. I'm going to read it slowly, and then we'll talk about it for a minute, and then we're going to march on into some other things and then wrap up. Here's what D.A. Carson said. Charismatics tend to want to make all occurrences of the expression baptized in the Holy Spirit refer to a post-conversion effusion, that just means receiving, of, of the Spirit. Some anti-charismatics contemplate 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and conclude with equal fallacy that all New Testament references are to the effusion of the Spirit and all, that all Christians receive at their conversion. Now listen carefully. The problem is the assumption on both sides that we are dealing with, here comes a technical term, terminus technicus, which is just a, a technical term for, for technically stopping, terminating, that always has the same meaning. So a, a definitive term that has one meaning. This is what he says. There is insufficient evidence to support that view. Interestingly, the Puritans adopted neither extreme, apparently detecting in the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit no consistent technical meaning. They took it to mean filling in the Spirit or fusion in the Spirit or inundation in the Spirit and felt free to pray for revival in the terms, O Lord, baptize us afresh with the Holy Spirit. Now, in the event you're sitting there saying, I'm so confused. Is this heresy? Where's the door? If you're sitting there saying that, I want to, I want to encourage you that, that I'm not pioneering some new approach here. Not only did the Puritans believe this, as Carson indicates, but Charles Spurgeon believed it, D. Martin, Joy, Martin Lloyd-Jones believed it, Charles Hodge believed it, Ian Murray believes it, D.A. Carson believed it, a host of other people believe it as well. Now, why is this important? Okay, let me describe for you why this is important. Here's why. Because in the book of Acts, we're going to encounter the believers being baptized in the Spirit, chapter 1, chapter 11. The Spirit coming upon us, chapter 1, chapter 19. These different references. Receiving the Spirit, being filled by the Spirit, chapter 2, chapter 4, chapter 9, chapter 13. The Spirit being poured out, chapter 2, chapter 10. Receiving this. See, all of these different phrases are going to be used as we go through and study the book of Acts. And the point that I'm trying to make is that all these phrases I just mentioned will be used in Acts to refer back to Pentecost. All these different ways to describe what has taken place at Pentecost. Which, which means that the experience of the Spirit that's taking place here in Acts chapter 2 is so rich and so full that Luke just piles up phrases trying to give adequate expression 
to what has really happened here in Acts chapter 2. And the important thing that we need to hear is that Luke has no intention within the book of Acts to distinguish between conversion and some later experience of the Spirit that we encounter. Therefore, these metaphors are flexible, referring back to Acts chapter 2. Now, if you're interested in additional study in that, uh, if you're not interested in additional study, I understand. If you are interested in some additional study, I have a paper that a friend and I wrote that's going to be posted on the website. I think it might be posted already. It's fouroakschurch.com backslash resources, and you can read the paper there for more information. Okay, so the, the, the Spirit comes. I mentioned we're going to talk about baptism of the Holy Spirit. Then I want to talk about unity in worship and boldness in witness, and then we wrap up. Let's talk for a second about unity in worship. So the Spirit falls Tongues happen. In this case, it's a discernible language. We'll deal with tongues later on. And the people of God hear God magnified in their own language. So one of the things we know from reading Acts chapter 2 is that the people, that there are people from all over the world, the then known world, that are present. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 5, it says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from Every nation under heaven. That's important. Because this is not simply a flashpoint. This is not simply, you know, being a witness to Pentecost and seeing the experience. But, but, but there's a flashpoint that's about to take place. A flashpoint where God, by His Spirit, begins to reverse the effects of Babel in Genesis I believe it's chapter 11. Now, you may recall the story. People of God, or, or the people within the world, said, let us build a tower to the heavens. We'll become like God. In other words, they had this desire to worship, but they displaced God, they moved themselves to the center, and they wanted to receive glory for how bright they were. So God judged them. And He judged them by confusing their languages and scattering them throughout the world. But we always know throughout beginning in Genesis 12, where, where he sends out Abram to become a, a, a man of all nations and marching through the Old Testament, that that was not God's last word on what would happen through ba Babel. And from the beginning, it was God's intention to have one people, not many people, one people. And we could march right through the Old Testament. In fact, the, the, the passage from Jeremiah that we read earlier is a gr great example where I will be their God and they shall be my people. Ezekiel, Valley of Dry Bones, chapter 37. Ezekiel, where the, the dry bones come together and, and they're one exceeding great army. Throughout the Old Testament, there, there are these visions and pictures and, and, and little post-its about the one people that would come, one people that, that God would, would, would pull together. See, Acts chapter 2 is the flashpoint where it all happens. Acts chapter 2 is, is where God fulfills that or begins to fulfill it, and then it culminates before the throne on the last day when there are those from every nation and tribe and tongue glorifying God. But this is the beginning, Acts chapter 2. So at Babel, language divided the people. With the coming of the Spirit, it begins to reverse the effects of Babel 
and unites them together in worship. Because in verse 11, it says that we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So it's unity in worship. And then lastly, and this is where we, we wrap up for the morning, it's not just about worship. Acts chapter 2 is where God's great invasion into the nations begins. Because as the nations are gathered there, they've come to Jerusalem, they are beginning to hear through the tongues of those that have received the Holy Spirit the mighty works of God being proclaimed. So the purpose of tongues in Acts chapter 2 was not just personal edification, it wasn't self-exaltation. It showed the power promised in Acts 1 was meant in part to take the gospel to other nations. To have other nations hear the mighty works of God. To hear that proclaimed to them. That the purpose of the power was not simply to bless. It was to send and proclaim the mighty works of God. It was to take a people that, will, that were huddled in the upper room, waiting, huddled in the upper room together, but not out there, huddled in the upper room, and to, dis, and to send them out into the streets among the people, declaring the mighty works of God. To infuse them with boldness so that they would actually pile into the streets with the news of a, a of a crucified Savior, a crucified and resurrected Savior, and begin to declare the mighty works of God. But in order to do that, they needed the power of God. See, without the power of God, without power, there's no way to move forward. Remember the 2013 Super Bowl? Ravens and 49ers in New Orleans, right in the middle of the Super Bowl, the power goes out for 35 minutes. The game stops. The clock stops. The lights stop. The control room stops. Because without power, everyone was in the dark. Without power, there was no way to move the game forward. There was no way to move forward at all. Everything stopped. See, here's what's so encouraging. Acts chapter 2 was God flipping the power was flipping the power on so the game could go on, so that, so that the people could have power for witness. And here's what we need to know. That isn't something that was simply a historical record that's locked back then and not available to us. It's something available to us as well today. And I don't know about you, but this is really timely because we've got the one life thing. You, the cards were on the on the chairs, and you may recall from last week that what we're, what we're agreeing to do is to think about one person that we feel like God, by His Spirit, wants us to reach out to, to serve, to love, to ultimately share the gospel with, maybe invite Him to church, and just make this series, this entire nine months, about one life. And what, what, what we need to know is that the power of God's promise the power that he promises in Acts chapter 2 is available to us today, and it extends all the way to our one life. Listen, I know this is hard, it, it's, but it, it's why God 
why God makes his power available. Of course it's hard. If, if this was easy, we wouldn't need power. If it was easy, they wouldn't have, God would have never sent power because they wouldn't need power. They'd just go out. They would do it simply because Jesus told them to do it. But obviously, they needed something more in order to go forward. They needed the power of God. One, one needs no power if they're just going to sit around eating pastries. To, to reach one life, we need power. Because it's, it's hard. I mean, I, I chose one life in an area business that I was frequenting and going to frequent more, and I went in this week, and the first thing the guy said to me was, hey, I resigned today. I leave my, I leave my job in just a few days. You know, th this is hard. It's hard. It's hard for me. I mean, all day I'm, I'm like around Christians, and finding unbelievers for a pastor can be hard work. I mean, I, I told the elders this week, I wake up next to my Christian wife. I, I leave my... Christian home and say goodbye to my Christian cat. <laughs> I go to my Christian office where I meet other Christian pastors to talk about how to help Christians be better Christians. I sit at my Christian computer and I compose Christian emails to send to other Christians to help other Christians. I don't know how that somebody in that position is going to find unbelievers. I mean, I've got to pray. I've got to pray that the building catches on fire to deliver unbelieving firemen to my door so that I can reach out to them. They can become my one life. Here's what we can be encouraged by. The power of God puts them in front of unbelievers. The power of God puts them in front of unbelievers declaring the mighty works of God. And what you can be encouraged about this morning is it was available to them and it's available to us as well. So, so let us go and let's ask God to pour out His Holy Spirit. In fact, let's pray the prayer that the Puritans prayed. Oh God, baptize us afresh with the Holy Spirit. Would you pray with me, please?